0: This episode will be the definitive guide to all things ovate pontics. Now we actually cover bridge pontics in general. And when we qualified from dental school, we only really learned the modified ridge lap or the ridge lap. Look, they're okay pontics, they do the job, but they're ugly. Ovate pontics are egg shaped or bullet shaped, and they emerge from the soft tissues and they look really natural. As well as that they offer really good cleansability as well. So Ovate pontic is the best kind of pontic you can aim for. But it's so difficult to find good content online when it comes to Ovate pontics until now. I got on once again, Dr. Jason Spisson who to me is the best dentist in the world. He is amazing. I've been to so many courses. He's taught me so much. And it's just always a pleasure to have him on the podcast. I tried to really extract as much as I could from Jason Smithson during this episode to try and cover a lot of depth, but also a bit more breadth around this topic. What I also did in the editing stages of this episode is I really stacked it with lots of visuals, because sometimes when you talk about topics like this, when it's not visual, it's very difficult to follow along. Now, for all my protrusorati audio listeners, don't worry all of it can be followed along by audio. But when a visual is really going to enhance the learning, I've put that on the screen. So for those of you who are watching on YouTube or on the app with the premium notes, you're probably going to gain a bit more. So I encourage you if you can make the time to do this like a like an on demand webinar kind of thing, right? Just study all the visuals that will really complement what we're talking about. In this episode, we discussed case selection for ovate pontics and all the nuances, like how deep do you actually go into soft tissues? Which kind of soft tissues are suitable? and What if you don't have enough soft tissue? And everything you have to do to actually develop your pontic site. At the end of the episode, we also see the return of Am I Naughty If? Because I shared with Jason a shortcut way of working with ovate pontics to try and bypass the healing time. And
1: I asked him what he thought. And the answer is very interesting. So we do Am I Naughty If? I don't think it's a terrible solution and actually is possibly a very acceptable solution for posterior units.
0: I share with Jason how I cheat. And so let's see what he has to say about that at the end. Before we join the main episode, I will give you my protrusive dental pearl. If you're new to the podcast, welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast. It's great to have you. If you're a veteran listener, you know that every PDP episode, I will give you a protrusive pearl. So this pearl, this piece of advice I'm going to give you is my rule when it comes to adhesive bridges or resin-bonded bridges. I got to a stage where lots of my colleagues are messaging me with advice for resin-bonded bridges. Is this tooth suitable to be an abutment for a resin bridge. Can I restore this case with an RBB? So I've got lots of these cases. And of course, all these colleagues and friends ask me for advice. I want them to succeed. I want their Reservoir and Bridges to last a long time. And they certainly can. Like my predecessor where I'm working now, he retired, and I'm seeing bridges that he placed 30 years ago. And we know from the literature that Reservoir and Bridges, when designed well, in the right occlusion, they really can work but sometimes we get stuck and we need to know, is this case suitable for a reservoir bridge or is that too ambitious? So I'll share with you my rule. When it comes to metal reservoir bridges, what I mean by that is the wing, AKA the retainer, is made out of metal and obviously the pontic is usually out of uh, porcelain or acrylic. For the metal RBBs, I advise never accept more than one compromise. So you're allowed one compromise. So what I mean by that, what's a compromise? Okay, this could be an aesthetic compromise. This could be the abutment size. Maybe that abutment is not ideal. It's a bit too small. Maybe Maybe it's the occlusion. It's a bit risky occlusion, it's a bit edge to edge. There's not enough overjet perhaps, or maybe the path of insertion on the bridge is not ideal. So you're looking at one sort of compromise. And sometimes we can accept this. When there's more than one compromise, i.e. you have a small abutment tooth that really is not gonna give you the right surface area to bond, and you also have an occlusion that's not ideal, then I would suggest that's not a case for reservoir bridges, unless you change something about those two factors. When it comes to zirconia-based reservoir bridges, I say no compromises. Okay, really, I want everything set up. And I want no compromises here. Because the long term data whilst is really good, I would encourage you all to check out the papers by Matthias Kern, showing the 10 year recall and success rate of zirconia resverand bridges, especially to replace lateral sizes, like 92%. That's really impressive. But I just think the track record with metal RBBs in the papers just spans so many more decades. And also, it's a more predictable bond. So zirconia resverand bridges, no compromises, make sure the occlusion is perfect, make sure so everything is perfect and they'll do really well. The data is there to prove it. But for metal ones, maybe you can accept one compromise. So that's my rule for Reservoir and Bridges as today's pearl. Let's now join the episode with Jason Smithson and I'll catch you in the outro. Dr. Hey. Jason Smithson, welcome back to the Patrician Podcast. How are you?
1: I'm good. good. Got a couple of months off. Well, off. That means not traveling. So uh, yeah, I've been at home for a couple of months and uh, I'm just in the practice two or three days a week. And uh, although I am, I am to spear in Arizona next week.
0: <laughs> We're all very accustomed to your your photograph at this train station uh, with your shoes Funny on. Out. Yeah, yeah. I, I lost access <laughs> to my your your shoes are famous. I lost access to my own um, Facebook account. But funnily enough, can you believe it? Right. So uh, I, I, you're no longer, longer my friend on Facebook, so I'll have to add you uh, on my new account. But yeah, I miss seeing your 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 shoes at the train station. That's like a, a hallmark thing, so so we admire that. Uh, so thanks again for joining us. No shoes required for this one today. We'll be discussing. No shoes on. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, me barefoot. I'm <laughs> barefoot as well. Me too. Me too. Right, we're, we're both doing this barefoot. Uh, we're talking about Ovate Pontics. It's a, it's a deep dive in a very small area, but there are a lot of questions, especially if you imagine uh, Jason, you know, young dentists qualifying with very basic skills in fixed prosthetics all altogether and really as they progress you know maybe five, six years later they come across a case like, okay you know what I've seen some cases whereby I could do an ovate Pontic and then we start looking online as you do for for tips and advice and there's not much out there so I'm hoping that this will become a uh- definitive guide to ovate pontics uh, that, that that you can share your years of experience. Like, uh, when I went to your course on verti-preps, uh, BOPT technique and vertical preparations, uh, you talked about the e-pontic, which I think might be a part of today, but I know there's showed so many amazing cases uh, and I know I've seen your uh, soft tissue cases and stuff. So everything is brilliant and everyone is really excited to learn from that. So I guess where to start would be just for the, maybe the dental students, the younger dentists, the different types of pontics that are generally used for bridges and what are, what are the main ones that we use currently?
1: All right, so... I'd start off by defining pontic. A pontic is a prosthetic false tooth, right? So that's for the dental students. And that could be related to a bridge, which is the obvious, or it could be related to an implant retained bridge. And actually I first started doing ovate pontics by default, and I didn't even realize I was doing it when I did immediate dentures. Mm -hmm. So there's also an ability to form an ovate pontic site when you do an immediate denture. So there's the th- kind of three applications. Now, historically, th- there are four main types of, of pontic design. Historically, we had what was called the hygienic or sanitary pontic. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I've never done one, but it's basically a rod that joins two retainer teeth together. So you've got a crown prep on, for example, a, a lower first premolar, and you've got a crown prep on a lower first molar and you're replacing the second premolar, and they're just joined with a little stick of material. And that classic- Like an occlusal table, right? Is this a big yeah, table? Yeah, it Was It was originally done in gold. So you got literally what looks like a bridge, not a dental bridge, but an actual bridge. And the idea was that you had a big blow through hole so that the patient could clean it effectively, hence the name Hygienic or sanitary pontic. Now, that works very well for chewing on, but it looks hideous. And secondly, they discovered it actually wasn't sanitary at all because people got food stuck in between it. You can imagine chewing a sandwich and getting tons of bread stuck in between. It's just disgusting. So although it was cl- easy to clean, when you're chewing, you basically get the best part of a takeaway meal stuck between your teeth. So it's it's not ideal. So. That is really, you might see them in your practice, but it's really, seen in the history books now. So that was the first. That that came out in the 50s, really. And then we had a pontic which is called the ridge lap. And what that means is your dummy tooth, your pontic tooth, laps, laps over the buckle and the palatal of the ridge. Hence, ridge lap, because it laps over the ridge. And actually, that can be made to look reasonably aesthetic but because the intaglio surface in other words the fit surface of the pontic is concave it goes over the buckle and over the palatal it's really tricky to clean so people couldn't get super floss underneath it and what you end up with when you have a ridge lap pontic is that you get inflamed tissue and it's red or purple and you get bleeding and it's it's not that great to look at
0: is that the same, Jason, as a saddle pontic? Yes.
1: Yes, it would be. That would be another name for it. Now that should be consigned to the history books, but sadly, I'm actually seeing quite a lot of that recently as a new it went out of vogue and now it's come back in. When I look at cases on Instagram where particularly where people are replacing significant hard tissue defects with implants and they can't build bone and they can't build soft tissue, they're oftentimes replacing that with acrylic. And what they're getting is a ridge-like Pontic. And it looks great, I I, I I won't name names, but I saw one on Monday from somebody who's very, very well known. It looks great on Instagram and you get all the oohs and ahs and 50,000 likes, but from a bio point of view, from a tissue point of view, it's a really, really bad idea. You might get a happy patient then, but when you go back to it, when you dismantle it long term, it's going to look horrible. I dismantled one last week and it just was hideous inside. So it stinks. So we got the sanitary and we got the ridge lap or, or the saddle. So the next one on was a modification of the ridge lap. What they did is they took the palatal bed off. So what you've got is something that sits on the existing tissue on the facial or the buccal side, or I mean, American language dropped in there, sorry about that, on the buckle side, um, but the palatal bit's been removed. So you've got something which sits on the tissue facially, but is more cleansable. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I was trained with. So yeah, I spent the first, I, I, and I think, I think it's fair to say most people in the UK, and frankly, probably most people worldwide are trained with that still, And it offers some advantages. The first and obvious advantage is it doesn't require any intervention from the dentist. You just do your crown preps or your, your implant placement. And then you take your impression and the technician does all the work and you seat it and it's done. Okay, fine. So it saves time and therefore saves cost for the patient usually. And the downside is that they don't look all that great generally you can generally see the margin. Because the margin is super gingival, you can see the margin where it touches the tissue. And it can be satisfactory for some patients, but for others, not so much. So then, when was that invented? 1980, actually, by a guy called Abrams. Came up with the ovate pontic. So the ovate pontic is essentially a pontic where the bit that touches a tissue is ovate. In other words, bullet-shaped. So if you can imagine the tip of the pontic where it touches a tissue is a bullet shape. And and we could talk about the biology of it a little bit later on maybe. But because it's bullet shape, in other words, it's entirely convex, it's very flossable. Hmm. And also it's supposed to go into the tissue. We can debate this, but on the whole, probably about one to two millimetres, let's say one to one and a half millimetres into a dimple that you've created in the tissue so that actually your margin, in other words, where the pontic meets the soft tissue, is actually subgingival so it would appear like it's coming out of the tissue. And the advantage of that is that you get massively better aesthetics and then you do get ooze on Instagram. And also, because it's ovate, it's cleansable. The downsides are you've got to condition the site. In other words, you've got to make the tissue that you're sitting the pontic on have a kind of dimple in it. Mm-hmm. Bill Robbins has a lovely expression. He calls it eggs in a nest. It's kind of like an egg in a in a nest. It's got to sit in a nest. So you've got to create that. And that can either be created... Post extraction, in other words, the tooth out and you've got a, a ridge to deal with, and there are ways of dealing with that post extraction, or it can be de- dealt with pre and during extraction. In other words, you've got a tooth which is compromised, has got to come out, and you extract the tooth, and then you conserve the extra or some degree of the extraction socket with your temporary. The temporary could either be t- a temporary acrylic fixed bridge. It could be conventional, or it could be a temporary acrylic adhesive bridge, or it could be a denture. And there are pros and cons for each of those. So basically, we've got four different to a long, long way around your question, but we've got four different options for pontic designs. The ridge lap and the hygienic have gone. And nowadays we've just basically got the choice of a modified ridge lap or an ovate. And there's a slight modification. To the ovate, which is what, what you were alluded to earlier, which is the pontic. So there we go. So that's it.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks. For that, a really nice summary. I think that's foundational, uh, and I think now we're on the same page for those listening and watching. I just like to know in your practice now what percentage, because uh, you know you do such a uh, lovely aesthetic work. What percentage of uh, the the pontics that you do are going to be modified ridge lap, and what percentage will be will be uh, ovate? And then does that mm-hmm. change anterior to posterior? I mean, just because you can do an ovate, is there ever a good reason? To do an ovate posteriorly, perhaps for cleansability, you know, you, you you let me know.
1: Yeah. So the main the question is ovate versus modified ridge lap, essentially, isn't it? <laughs> um, I would say in my practice, I virtually always do ovate or e right? I very very rarely do modified ridge lap. However, I would couch that by saying that. I work in, I'm not a specialist, but I work in a specialist practice and the vast majority of my patients are either referred to me or come to me direct because they want a specific prosthetic or aesthetic outcome, so my patient population is is skewed. The only time, so I think there are very few reasons why I wouldn't want to do an ovate pontic the only reasons why i wouldn't want to do an ovate pontic and i'd do a modified ridge lap are the patient isn't prepared to come back and have the site conditioning and that and oftentimes pay, dentists say oh well you know the patient won't pay for it oftentimes it's usually time in my practice you know you've got a patient who's not that aesthetically bothered and they're just like i just want to get on with it i want to get it done in two visits not five that that would be one reason. Another reason, maybe there's some medical reason that would preclude it. For example, I can't think of a really good one, but perhaps uncontrolled bleeding issues or something like that. Or or actually, maybe a patient on bisphosphonates. That that I was would thinking be good, IV what, Maybe yeah, that would be a good reason. I've not encountered it in my own practice, but. Certainly, when you modify the site post extraction, you may end up touching bone. So, that might not be a good idea for patient on bisphosphonates. So, just something that something I should put in my lecture because it's just something I, that occurred to me. But they would be the only reasons, really.
0: And, and posteriorly as well, I, I, by default, if you're doing a posterior bridge, you do an ovate pontic as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because, like in the posterior, in my practice, vast majority of the time, I'm either doing implants or I'm re- Adrian, my implantologist places the implants, I restore them, but I'm restoring an implant. So I'm going to put a provisional on there anyway. So if I'm going to put a provisional on there anyway and load the implants, then why would I not use that same provisional to form an ovate pontic, given the actual time to, the extra time to do that is probably less than five minutes. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm working on teeth, the vast majority of time in my practice that I'm working on posterior teeth with bridge work. I'm tending to do a vertical margin. And there are a couple of different reasons for that. The first and most common reason is I deal with a lot of older patients who've got significantly compromised teeth and we do vertical margin to deal with those compromised teeth. And the other reason may be that I've got younger patients and I want to be more conservative. So I do a super gingival vertical margin to be more conservative. It's actually quite unusual for me to do a conventional chamfer margin for a posterior bridge. And again, if you're doing vertical margin, you need the provisional to condition the tissue for, I know this is debatable, but 40 days. So why would I not do an ovate pontic at the same time? So that's that's where I, I appreciate I'm in a slightly skewed practice, but that's kind of where I am with that.
0: Um, for those of you listening, you, you weren't watching. As Jason was saying that, I was smiling because when Jason says something that uh, is very, and, and I and I'm already doing that in practice, it makes you feel really good. So that that's fantastic because uh, I'm I'm a big fan of vertical for, as I learned from you as well. So that's great that we we have that and I, you pass that on to me. So I feel good about myself. Now there might be some ways of me doing Ovate, which you might probably disagree with, and I'm totally cool for you to tell me I'm an idiot, Jason. Okay, well, we're gonna come on to that later. And at the end, <laughs> yeah, I know you would. At the end, we're gonna talk about the ePontic, which will be cool. Uh, just in the in the middle pit, there, there could be another reason, perhaps that you may, maybe would be a bit more challenging to do an ovate pontic. So particularly that scenario where I've considered doing an ovate pontic before, but then I do the the bone sounding, which we'll talk about, you know, suitability of that site to receive the the bullet shape, you know, uh, ovate pontic. There was like, you know, one to two millimeters, it's just very thin uh, tissue. And, and then to actually get an ovate pontic, I'd have to do bone removal or something. So we'll, we'll talk about that. So let's talk about maybe what is bone sounding and how much uh, is the ideal amount of tissue that you should have to be able to
1: consider an ovate pontic. All right. Would you mind if I just rewound and just took a look to the considerations for pre-extraction and post-extraction because that would lead on to quite sensibly. All All right, right. so let's look at post-extraction first. So you've got a patient comes in with a missing tooth. They've had the tooth out, I don't know, several months, maybe even years ago. They're missing a tooth. The ridge is relatively flat and that you've made a decision that you're going to prep the adjacent teeth and place a bridge. So if you want to form an ovate pontic, you've got to condition the saddle, the site. So what you need from a biological point of view is you've got the bone and then covering the bone, you've got connective tissue and then covering the connective tissue, you've got epithelium, right? Now, as I alluded to earlier on in the presentation or the podcast, the ovate pontic has got to go into the tissue by about a millimetre to be stable, at least. I wouldn't make it more than two millimetres, but it's certainly got to go in because that makes it difficult to clean. But you've, it's got to go in at least a millimetre to look decent. So you need a millimetre. You also need a millimetre thickness for the epithelium. You also need a millimetre thickness, at least for the connective tissue. And that was described by uh, Willow under Biologic Width. So when you bone sound, and we'll come to that, you need to have at least three millimeters from depth of tissue to allow you your millimeter for your pontic, your millimeter for your epithelium, and your millimeter for your connective tissue. Mm-hmm. There is another bit of research, I can't remember the name, I think it's a guy called Posse off the top of my head, if I misquoted in my apologies. And he talks about prosthetic biologic width. So there's biologic width of connective tissue and epithelium, but their studies showed something like two and a half to three, so a little bit thicker. But anyway, what you would do at that point is you would look at the patient and you would numb them up because people don't like to have this done without being anesthetized. And you would take a periodontal probe a non-ball-ended periodontal probe, just a regular periodontal probe, and just advance it onto the saddle, onto the tissue, and press down, and it will penetrate initially the epithelium and then the connective tissue, and then you'll hit bone. You will feel some resistance as you hit the connective tissue. It's not bone at that point. You need to feel the positive bump. And then you look at the measurement. Now, if you've got 3 millimeters. You're kind of good to go, and it's going to be all in soft tissue. If you haven't got three millimeters, if you've got two millimeters or less, what that means is you can still create an ovate pontic site, but you're going to need to remove bone, Mm -hmm. all right, because you've got to have the room to get the pontic in, the the connective tissue and the epithelium. Now, that creates a few problems in so much as you've got to be really careful where your gingival margin is so the way to do that is what you would do is you would do your crown preparations once you've done your crown preparations you would fabricate your temporary and what i would then do is get your pontic the right shape as you shape your temporary and adjust the occlusion and get everything right from an aesthetic point of view so, your pontic is the correct shape at the gingival margin and the correct length. Then, the next thing I do is I take a really, really thin sharpie marker, indelible marker pen, and just draw around the gingival margin with the temps mm-hmm. in place before you cement them. And then but
0: at this stage, Jason, at, at this stage, what you're dealing with essentially is a modified lap, right? That you're going to convert
1: to an ovate. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've then got a little U-shaped marked on the tissue, which is exactly where you want your pontic to be. The gingival zenith we're talking about, right? Yeah, that's a subtlety, and it's a little. it takes a little bit longer to do it like that, but it means you put the site in the correct position because oftentimes people just blindly burr and then they end up with a gingival margin which is lower than it should be and it just looks terrible. So you mark it with a marker pen. Then you take your temperature off, and some people use a football burr, coarse diamond you want. And some people, including myself, use a round diamond. And what you need to do then is to actually use the burr to sink, to make a divot in the soft tissue. Now, if you going back to the bone sounding, if you know for sure that you've got three millimeters or more of tissue depth. You can just burr a millimetre, maybe a millimetre and a half into that soft tissue, and you now know that that's going to heal up okay, and you're going to have a millimetre of connective tissue and a millimetre of epithelium, so you're good to go. So that's the simplest one. Oftentimes you haven't, and if you haven't, you're going to need to burr more because you're going to need to burr into bone, right? So what you're going to need to do is to take that burr into the soft tissue and burr through the epithelium, through the connective tissue until you hit bone. And the the next question is, how much bone do I need to remove? And the answer would be, until your burr is sunk three millimetres into the tissue from the gingival margin, right? Mm -hmm. Will bleed quite a lot. And and once you've done that, you know you've got your millimetre of your pontic, your millimetre of your connective tissue. And your millimeter for the epithelium. Sorry to keep repeating that, but I, need, I need to go in. I will bleed a lot. That's not a big deal. All you need to do then is I just use something. Some people use electrosurgery, but I think that tends to be a bit painful and it stinks. I just use in or viscostat. Clean it up with viscostat. or will stop bleeding. Might go black though. So let's reassure everyone <laughs> it's going to go horrible. <laughs> Might go black, but that'll come back. Yeah. Uh, then. What you do is some people use flowable composite. I use regular composite. You just put a little bit of regular composite on the apical part of your pontic and sit it into the site that you've just created. Then you light cure it. It will like it shouldn't technically, but it will light cure through the tissue. Oh, a little aside before you put the composite on the temporary bridge, I always put a little bit of Signum from Colza. It's a modeling resin, it's designed to link acrylic to composite. So anyway, you sink this composite into, into the site you prepared and light cure it. Then you take it out and it will be rough as rats. So then you you shape it until it's convex all the way around, so it's a dome shape. Now, you've then got to make sure it only penetrates a millimetre to a millimetre and a half into the socket because if it's right on the bone crest, it's not going to heal very well. So what you do is you replace your bridge after you've trimmed it into a dome shape, and then I just take a pencil, propelling pencil is really good because it stays sharp, and then you mark around your gingival margin onto the bridge with a propelling pencil, take it out, and you'll have a pencil line. And then you measure, I, I would just do, say, a millimetre and a half, measure a millimetre and a half from the pencil line apically, and then trim the pontic to that level. Then you can reseat it on what you'll have in the site you've prepared as a blood clot at the base, some space, and your pontic. And then you leave it alone. Now, how long do you need to leave it alone? Well, Well, you cement it, obviously, and then leave it alone. Be very careful with your cement cleanup. A little tip I do is I... Place the temporary bridge, then cover the whole thing with Vaseline. Mm-hmm. So, anytime I ever use Vaseline in the dental surgery, then take the bridge off, dry the retainers, put my temporary cement on the internal fit surface, the intaglia, seat it. And then, because it's covered in Vaseline, all the temporary cement will peel off dead easy. Mm-hmm. You don't have all those smears everywhere and you don't have lots into Proxmo, clean it up with super floss. Then leave the whole thing alone for six weeks. Mm -hmm. And then you can take your final impressions. You need five to seven days for the epithelium to heal. And you need, well, 21 to 28 days for the connective tissue to heal and mature. So if you leave it for six weeks, you've got loads of time. The patient is instructed to clean with superfloss. And also I get them to use water picks. That's really effective. And then six weeks later, you take the whole thing off, take a regular impression, and then they'll instruct the lab to fit the pontic in the final restoration into the socket you've created, but do not scrape the model. There is a bit of a tendency with labs when they make a bridge on the stone of the model or in the CAD to actually remove a bit of tissue in the pontic site so when you seat it at blanches, you don't want that. Because obviously, if it blanches, you're going to end up with basically what's what's called a biologic width invasion. You're going to get inflamed tissue. So that's it really on the post-extraction, which is what most people will deal with.
0: Hey guys, it's Jazz interfering here with two mega quick announcements. One, if you want this episode summarized in a beautiful infographic with all the decision making and summaries, then head over to protrusive.co.uk forward slash ovate and we will send it to your inbox. So that's protrusive.co.uk forward slash ovate. For those of you who've seen the protrusive infographics before, you know, a lot of effort goes into it and they are the best infographics in dentistry, I am pleased to say. The second announcement is for our live event on Saturday, 30th of September. So it's Occlusion and Communication Symposium 2023. We've got some great speakers. The lineup includes Dr. Kostas Karajnopoulos, who did the injection molding episode for Toothwear many episodes ago. He'll be talking about how to transfer the wax up to the mouth and make sure the occlusion is respected. We've also got Dr. Tiff Qureshi talking about Dahl technique versus full mouth rehab. When do you choose which one? Then we've got the high-flying Dr. Rona Askandar talking about moving away from single tooth dentistry and all the challenges that comes with being a young dentist and you're trying to push your boundaries and how you can overcome any mindset issues. So that's Rona. And then we've got a live panel, like a fun thing. Me and Mahmoud Ibrahim will host this live panel discussion. We'll ask some tough questions to these guys, as well as open up questions from the audience. And then after lunch, we've got Prav Solanke. He's going to do a 90 minute masterclass on how to communicate, how to elevate your communication to increase your treatment uptake. Like there's one thing to be able to do the dentistry, but if you can't communicate the value of that dentistry to your patient, then you're not going to be able to serve your patients the best. So it's so a whole communication session with a keynote speaker, if you like, is Prav Solanke. And then we've got Salman Muhammad. He's been a guest twice before on the podcast, and he'll show you some full protocol cases. Sometimes it's nice to see the step by step. Before and after, are good. But I've told someone to really show the step by step by step when it comes to these bigger cases, tooth wear, and those that involve occlusion and communicating with the lab. Lastly, we've got a drinks reception from 5 to 6pm. So we would love for you to join us on Saturday, 30th of September at the Sheraton Skyline Hotel in London Heathrow. The website for that is protrusive.co.uk forward slash occlusion. That's protrusive.co.uk forward slash occlusion. Now it's back to Dr. Jason Smithson. I'm trying to still extract as much as I can. He's so full of knowledge. And at the time of recording, I I guarantee you, I was having so much fun. I hope you guys are too. Before we get to the extraction yeah. one and then immediate management, Scott has got cool. a few nuanced questions about the protocol you explained. So firstly, thank you for sharing that because it's very difficult to find information about this. And I think that's going to be incredibly helpful to all the dentists listening and watching. I appreciate you being so so giving uh, with that. With that protocol, I think one uh, bit, if I followed correctly, and just for understanding of it, is very, once you've got very the- technical well, without
1: pictures, isn't it?
0: I know, I know, which, 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 is, which is tricky, but this is uh, why we're going to elaborate a little bit more. So once you put the composite, into the tissues whereby you've just drilled the the self tissue away and maybe you drill some bone away and once you've controlled the bleeding you put your composite inside so that it's kind of like a a flattish and it's going into it but at this point i think one thing you didn't quite make clear which makes sense to me but just to make it super clear do you want to seat the bridge on as you're curing so that the the composite then joins onto the pontic of
1: the bridge yeah so what you would do is you would once you've got your bridge trimmed to your ideal then when you add the composite you would roughen the, co- the pontic site a little bit just with a burr place a little bit of signum place a kind of dome of composite i tend to use like shades a4 and a5 because it looks a bit rootish and then seat the whole thing uh, over the teeth to full seating oftentimes you can just get the patient to occlude or press it down or in the posterior just get them to occlude on a cotton roll That fully seats the bridge, so the composite is being forced into the site you've created. You will get some excess coming out. A little nuance is actually to use an instrument called an IPCL, Interproximal Carver Long, which is a really skinny, flat plastic. You can actually sculpt off the excess with that, means you've got less trimming, Mm -hmm. and then lycure it. Mm -hmm. Is that clear, Mm -hmm.
0: That's that's fantastic. So the, the bit of actually seating the bridge on at the time of actually having the the composite in the tissues was w- was the bit to clarify there. And just for clarification,
1: another question we, would be why would you use composite rather than acrylic? Okay, um, is it yeah? I mean, is it people, of the heat or no? Some people don't. Well, tissues like composite is better than acrylic. It's a more polished surface, and actually, it's a bit more viscous, so it's easier to control. That's that's why I do it
0: amazing yeah definitely someone would have asked that on the youtube but why not use acrylic so that, that i'm glad you covered that already and then when you drew the pencil line when you have the bridge now seated before you cement it the pencil line is essentially telling us that is the gingival zenith as we see it basically and then once you uh take that off and you you send you then mark 1.5 millimeters above that line that's like your actual ovate part of the pontic and then beyond that will be the all the regeneration of the bone and the connected tissue and the epithelium is that a, a fair summary
1: It is. So when it's seated and cemented, what you've got in that area is sometimes exposed bone Mm. and then blood clot and then your composite pontic. Uh, What's going to happen over time is that blood clot is going to form connective tissue and epithelium and heal from the base. Now, if you don't trim it correctly, you're going to basically have your composite on bone and then there's no room for that blood clot to convert into connective tissue and epithelium. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's why you've got to be super careful with that.
0: Okay, brilliant. And so that explains it all really nicely. In this scenario that you explained is whereby, yes, the tooth was extracted a long time ago and then you describe exactly how you modify it and then that was all well explained. But this works when you want to migrate your genital zenith apically. What about if you're missing lots of tissue and actually you'd want to bring some tissue down are we then, uh, this is something I don't know nothing about, Jason, but like, are we looking at connected tissue graphs? How stable is that? Is that something that you do with a periodontist or yourself?
1: All right. So bone defects are classified into three classifications called Siebert classification. Okay. So class one is a lingual defect. So in other words, the ridge is a bit thin, but you haven't lost height. So this is like when someone's
0: done an extraction and the labial plate broke off,
1: right? Yeah. yeah or oh, the patient just lost tissue, hard and soft tissue. So class one, bocolingual's thin, but the height, coronal apical, is correct. Okay. Class two is when the lingual is the correct thickness, but you've lost height, right? So you've lost coronal height. And class three is you've lost lingual and height, Okay. Ovate pontic without any graft only works well in class one. So when you've lost width, in other words, buccolingual thickness. If you've lost height, it's more challenging because there's nothing to play with, right? Now, oftentimes, if you've lost buccolingual thickness, often you can get away with just an ovate pontic without any graft. So in a class one, you can do an ovate pontic without any graft, a lot of the time. If you've lost a lot of buccolingual thickness, you may need to consider a graft, but in a class one defect, you can usually get away with just a soft tissue graft. In other words, you're grafting connective tissue, typically, usually to the buccal, to generate enough width to create your ovate pontic. For class two and class three, you always need to consider hard tissue and soft tissue graft. So for the purposes of this podcast, I would suggest that that's referred out because that's a specialist job generally. In terms of class one with a soft tissue graft, we probably haven't got enough time to talk about this, but it can be done in a number of ways. You can either take the connective tissue as what's called an allograft. In other words, it comes out of a packet. And I used to do a lot of cases with a product called Alloderm. You can't buy it in the UK anymore. It just comes out of a packet. You roll it up into a sausage shape. You make a little kind of slash incision on a gingiva, undermine it, and then you put this sausage-shaped bit of material in. You kind of tie your sausage shape up with resorbable sutures, a bit like tying a pork joint, if you've ever seen a pork joint. <laughs> and you just put that in. And you, I, t- I used to tend to suture that to the palatal side. And then I I tended to over-bulk it so that when I made my ovate pontic, it got squidged into proximally and I got some pili out of it. is not available now. There are other alla- allograft materials on the market. You can still use that. Nowadays, I tend to use a patient. So you can either take that from the palate With a procedure called a sub epithelial connective tissue graft. Or, and this is what I do quite commonly, I take it from the tuberosity. Oftentimes, if you take, um, if you can imagine a wedge of tissue from the tuberosity with the wider bit of the wedge being the epithelium and the more apex or triangular bit of the wedge uh, deeper into the connective tissue. I just, if they've got a really flabby tuberosity, you can just harvest that trim up the epithelium, then close the tuberosity, a couple of sutures, and then you can do the same thing as I used to do with the alloderm graft in the anterior, just with this thick bit of tissue. And the advantage is, it's a little bit more friendly to the patient because it's actually them, and you haven't got the hang up of it being, you know, it comes from who knows where, and it's cheaper for the patient because I can harvest one of those in, I don't know, 15 minutes, and you haven't got the cost of the allograft so that's how we deal with that with a with a graft or whatever the only i mean because that is
0: very special and we could spend the whole five hours talking about that i think that the only question i have here is actually something from the community i was gonna say it for later but someone actually just asked like how can we learn the the soft tissue skills that jason has so is there anywhere that you uh, recommend recommend to learn well, i wouldn't recommend
1: learning my skills because i'm not the best surgeon <laughs> i very rarely post cases of my surgery i usually post like before and after, and I never post in between. <laughs> because my, my surgery usually ends up looking good at the end because I understand biology, mm-hmm. but I'm not the most refined surgeon. I'll be very honest with you. I'm a little bit on the agricultural side surgery-wise, so I know what I'm doing, but it never looks very pretty. Yeah. So I think, you know, there are a number of people who teach surgery to a good standard, I think, I think frankly and no disrespect to english periodontists or, or uk periodontists but really really you gotta go abroad to learn periosurgery and, and grafting to a high standard and i learned quite a lot from zier and Hertzler in germany and then there are a number of people in, in the us who are very skilled the- yeah.
0: I, I just thought I'd uh, pick your brain on that. It's good that you, you know we know that where you learned your stuff and result, and it's, uh, it was it was nice to hear, Jason, because we see you as like this, like you know you're just good at everything. So it's nice to see you say that. Actually, no, I'm you're really not good. That. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah. It's, it's, it's just not for here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's really nice to hear that. So thank you so much for sharing that. It made us all feel good, uh, uh, Jason. Let's talk about that other pathway now, whereby. You've just taken out a lateral incisor, let's say, and you want to use that as um, a, a way to develop an ovate pontic for that. Um, That protocol
1: me be way different. How do you manage it? A bit different. I mean, the first thing you said was a lateral incisor, and actually I'd just like to get to segue into a lateral incisor in my practice is almost certainly going to be a pontic every single time. I very rarely replace a lateral incisor with an implant because they typically there's oftentimes not enough room for the implant. And secondly, they always look rubbish, and they often look a lot better as a pontic, be it an adhesive bridge, a conventional bridge, or an implant-retained bridge. So there's that. Now, how do we manage from extraction? Well, these are the cases that where the temporary has got to stay on for a decent amount of time, three to six months. So I would, first of all, get a lab-made bridge, temporary bridge, Made before you start, or a provisional denture. Mm-hmm. So you would prep the teeth. Assuming we're doing a conventional bridge, we can talk about adhesive bridges later on if you want. You prep the teeth. I would tend to prep the teeth to a good standard before I extract the tooth because otherwise you end up decorating your whole office with blood. Right? Then I would extract the tooth. Now it's important to extract the tooth. There's, there's a saying of, there's a kind of phrase, a traumatic extraction, which I think is kind of an oxymoron because like how can you atraumatically extract the tooth? But let's call it extract the tooth with the least carnage possible, serving as much soft tissue and bone as you can. So what I typically will do is go around the gingival margin with a scalpel blade, 15C usually, right down to bone. So I'm not going to tear the tissue. And then I'm going to use really, really fine sharp periosteal elevators and just work my way down with a periosteal elevator just go all the way around the tooth and if you take your time you can often find as you're working with wider and wider periosteal elevators the tooth will just rise out of the socket and you'll almost be able to pick it out with your finger mm-hmm. it will take and. You know, if you're having to lean on it with forceps, it's just really a bad idea because you're going to end up bending or fracturing the plates and then you're stuffed. Then what you do is pretty much the same as you would do post-extraction, but obviously you've got your defect created for you by virtue of extracting the tooth in any case. Now, the next question is... How far do you take the composite addition into the extraction socket? I mm-hmm. uh, suggestion, there is some nuance to this and we can talk about this later on if you want, but to be safe, I would take it three millimeters in first of all, three. So what you do is exactly the same thing. Signal onto the base of the Pontic bit of composite resin, take it into the extraction socket clean it up with an IPCL. I often sometimes use a number three brush as well and some modeling resin just to smooth it, light like cure it, mark the position of the gingival margin, take it out, trim it back so it's in three millimeters, cement it. Then I would typically leave that alone for about six weeks. And then after six, there's no good data on this, by the way. After it's just kind of, it's just what's worked for me over the years. After six weeks, I would take the thing off and I would shorten it to two millimetres. And then after 12 weeks, I would take the thing off and shorten it to one millimetre. Now, there are some nuances. If the patient, what you need to look at is your relative risk of losing tissue mm-hmm. and creating a Siebert class 1, 2, or 3 defect. Now, obviously, if the patient has very little bones surrounding that tooth buccally, for example, they're a periopatient, they've lost tooth, they've lost tissue, bone tissue as a result of a periodontal disease, or perhaps there's a root fracture and they've lost bone as a result of that, or a perforation, or something like that. When you take the tooth out, you've lost a lot of buccal bone. So your risk of the whole thing collapsing is quite high. So in those cases, I might leave it, after my second adjustment, I might leave the whole thing one and a half, two millimetres into the tissue rather than shortening it to a millimetre because otherwise the whole thing's going to collapse in. You've got to temper that with a patient's ability to clean it. Mm -hmm. So if they're a periopatient and they've lost tissue as a result of periodontal disease, and their oral hygiene is immaculate now, you might want to leave it a couple of millimeters in. If it's not so brilliant, you might want to take it a millimeter and take the risk. It's difficult and there's no hard and fast rules there. And in terms yeah. of the healing that Jason, I suppose the
0: biological width just reestablishes itself based on the most apical extent of the ovate pontic and it just Heals uh, uh, around it, um, and so there's no preparation needed because the defect is there and just heals around the pontic and the biology sort of sets itself. Yes,
1: except in patients that are Kois, who K O I S, who originally described bone sounding, which I kind of talked about earlier on in some to some degree, actually describes people as being high bone crest, medium bone crest, or low bone crest. What that means is. How the bone relates to the cemento enamel junction of the tooth. People whose bone is close to the cemento enamel junction, in other words, have very short biological widths, are high bone crest. And people whose bone is a long way from the cemento enamel junction are low bone crest. And, and most of us are somewhere in between. In the patients with high bone crest, you've maybe got to consider, because they're at low risk of losing tissue. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yep, they got pl- yeah, um, plenty of bone, uh, healing capacity, and yeah, more tissue. The bone is super high, so those patients you might only want to tuck it in a millimeter, and you're you're at very low risk of losing a ton of tissue, mm-hmm. right? People with low bone crest are at super high risk of losing a ton of tissue, so they've got to be managed slightly differently. So that, that there are a lot of, and then you've got the medical uh, contraindications, and then you've got in terms of their healing. And then you've also got to think about their biotype, the thickness of the tissue itself. Some people have thick biotype, super thick tissue. Some people have thin biotype, really thin tissue. And it's usually related to the thickness of the connective tissue rather than the epithelium. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can get away with quite a lot with people with thick biotype. And you will sometimes. You can do everything perfectly, and it doesn't come out quite so well in people with thin biotype, just because their biotype is quite challenging to deal with. So these are all other factors that you've got to factor in. But what I'm trying to do over this very short podcast is to just give a feel for a general approach, really.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's impossible to, to cover every single case, and it's, it's also case dependent and so many um, biological uh, biotype variables. But just on that, like you know, d- does the thick or thin biotype? Uh, how could that influence how deep the ovate pontic goes can that influence whether it goes a millimeter or more towards the
1: the two millimeter mark so now we're getting into we're getting into super nuance now I mean if you bone sound generally around their mouth and you're seeing thicknesses of like four millimeters and you only put three millimeters for your pontic side mm hmm mm-hmm that could be an issue you know, yeah it could be any do you see where i'm going with that yeah yeah yeah. all right so this is where it gets into really i hesitate to talk about this broadly on on a podcast because yeah. what i don't want to do is for people to go away and do you know specialist procedures that people have spent five years training to do and and probably 20 years learning and and, and have problems
0: no very, very valid and i think um this would be a good point to just uh uh, finally conclude uh, and say uh, can you tell us about the e-pontic and how maybe perhaps you've already described it, uh, how does the e-pontic uh, differ to, to to what you've said so far? Alright, so the
1: e-pontic was first described in 2015 by a guy called Corman, an American, as in uh, if you want to read about it, it's, uh, I think it's, it's a, a Journal of Aesthetic and Restorative Dentistry, Jurd. Alright, so your ovate pontic is a bullet shape and your e-pontic and, and, it, and it penetrates a millimeter to a millimeter and a half into the tissue. The epontic is completely different. The epontic, rather than being a bullet shape, is on the facial surface, it is flat from mesial to distal. And the flat aspect penetrates a millimeter subgingival. And on the mesial and distal, rather than it being a dome, it's a right angle. So it's very square. And then on a palatal surface, where an ovate pontic penetrates a millimeter, on the palatal of the epontic, it rests at the level of the gingival margin. Mm-hmm. So what you've got is this straight, flat surface coming up like that, this being facial and this being palatal, this being a millimeter sub-g, this being super, uh, equi-g, mm-hmm. I mean up flat, Mm -hmm. Because it's flat, it's still cleansable with superfloss. Yeah. But the concept is that because you've got a right angle mesial and distally, it supports the papilla more. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the thoughts are, the general, in in Corman's paper, he describes the fact that he feels that the stability, certainly papilla-wise, is much more stable with the epontic Rather than with the ovate. Nobody's actually done a prospective trial on that comparing one with the other. So we don't really know. What I would say is in my practice, if somebody has thick biotype and I create my Pontic at the time of extraction, I'm probably going to go ovate because it's a little bit easier. And my relative risk in terms of their biology is quite low. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing post-extraction and they've got thin biotype and I can't change their bi, if they're not prepared to have a graft, either they don't want it or they're not prepared to pay for it, so I can't change their biology, I might go e because they've got a better, and better chance for stability. Again, this is very much based on on experience and a knowledge of biology. For anybody listening, I think it's worthwhile reading all those boring papers and boring books about tissue biology, because you can't do this predictably unless you've got a good idea of biology, and that's really the key. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's something we skip nowadays, it's kind of tedious, but... Yeah. But I, but I, it was it was great for you to introduce the e ponting. I'll put
0: some visuals there as well, and I will uh, put the paper in the show notes that you mentioned as well. I think that'll be useful for people, people yeah. to go in. This it considers like a uh, introduction to it. I have final two bits left, uh, Jason. Of this, so
1: a really good out of interest. Yeah, just out of uh, interest for papers while we're here. There's a really good paper. I can't remember the journal, but it was written in, written last year in 2022 by a guy called Bill Robbins. You may have seen Robbins's operative dentistry textbook. He's a super nice guy. I met him at the Restorative Dentistry Congress in February. Yeah, Bill Robbins' paper on, on overvape pontic last year. was It was super good. A really good overview. Excellent. Okay, the amazing. You moment. Yeah,
0: no, definitely. I'll attach that to the show notes. So, thanks so much. And with full credit to, to Dr. Robbins. That's, uh, that's amazing. My final Professor two bits Robbins. is <laughs> Professor Robbins. That's Professor Robbins to you all. Uh, okay, fine, good. So, that's amazing. I'll, and I'll add that. So, thanks for sharing that. Uh final two bits is any tips on lab communication, and the final bit is I'm going to tell you the dodgy GDP way that I've done it, and I had pretty good results, but uh, you can feel, feel free to critique it and tell critique. me where I'm where I'm taking the risks. And I, I know where I'm taking the risks, but you can you know, critique me on, on all the things that I could be doing differently, uh, but I'm yeah, saving time. So But anyway, any lab uh, tips that you want to give? All right,
1: so you've got lab tips in terms of the provisional and lab tips in terms of the final. The provisional... I would ask them to create the ovate pontic in the model so that when you make your lab provisional, the gingival margin and the zenith are in the correct position right from the get-go, which is going to save you a lot of trimming and mucking about. So that's the first thing. They can either do that with a scalpel or my lab just do it with an acrylic burr. They create the pontic site with the acrylic burr, put it where I want it, I I can mark it on the model with a pencil if I want, or we can mark it digitally, and then that's that done. In terms of the final, there's not much lab instruction other than the fact that you don't want to scrape the model, which we mentioned earlier, which they're oftentimes really tempted to do. The other thing is, and I mean most of my bridge work nowadays is zirconia, now, if you look at the studies, tissue likes zirconia more than it likes ceramic. So if you get the lab to create the superstructure, the framework of your zirconia bridge that fits precisely into your ovate pontic so that your pontic site, which is sub G, is entirely in zirconia and is not layered Mm-hmm. That will give you a better tissue. It's more tissue friendly. Now, obviously, you've got to hide that. So there is a product. It's a, essentially a powder-based tint which labs use, called Myo M I Y O, and they can use that to tint the zirconia, so it would appear like it's a root. Nice. Uh, and that's how we deal with. Obviously, we don't tint the fit surface just a bit, maybe half a millimeter out. And then you get the look of ceramic, but with the with the business end, let's say, in the zirconia. So that 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 will give you a better outcome. And I don't really think about that because my lab does that now because we've been through it, but it's worth telling them initially when you start working with them. Okay.
0: Brilliant. And I didn't know about this Mayos. So that's great to so be given a lot in this uh, podcast
1: episode. Myos, thank brilliant. you. Brilliant. Myos. Yeah. Never heard of it. We used Mayo on Emacs now. we we don't really do that many layered EMACs. We just stain and glaze it, and we stain and glaze all zirconia. We don't layer that. So the lab love it because it's way quicker, better workflow, and I've got a stronger restoration. Mm-hmm, Amazing
0: product. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. I'll look, I look into that. I mean, maybe the lab's already using it. I don't know, but it's good to, uh, the, to, to the name line, which is good. Yeah, mm. yeah, fine. Well, I'll we'll, we'll speak to my techni- technician. So uh, lastly, here's how I've managed Ovate Pontics before when i wanted to cheat a little bit and skip the time to for, for all the healing yeah i know you're gonna hate me for it and i know i, know, I, know, I hate you, you already i know, <laughs> I know, I know you I know, I know you'd never do this but here's my uh, hack that i managed to do so if i've done my bone sounding and let's say i've got five millimeters my bone sounding and i've decided that uh, i'm happy to go to a two uh, 1.52 two, millimeter pontic what i will do is uh, let's say for a resin modern bridge. I will send my scan or my imps. Usually for me, it's a scan, uh, and I will tell my technician I'm going to go for an Ovate Pontic. I want you to actually create the Ovate site for me. I want you to go in 1.5 millimeters, uh, and either I'll um, g- g- check it when they send me on WhatsApp, and I'll have a look to make sure they've gone in. Now, when the bridge comes back, let's say it's a and bridge, it's not going to fit because there's tissue in the way. At this point, Jason, I'm going to get my thermocut bur right and just do it away until okay. I can passively seat my bridge and there's no more blanching. Now, I only do this in cases where there's plenty of uh, decent thickness of tissue and I wouldn't do it uh, in an overly aesthetic case on a young patient whereby yeah, I really want control, uh, like crazy control over it. But that's how I cheated before. Am I really naughty?
1: All right, so the technique you've just described is actually in Bill Robbins' paper that I recommended you earlier, all right? <laughs> so it's not too naughty, all right? The, the, the things I would say about that I don't think it's a terrible solution and actually is possibly a very acceptable solution for posterior units, all right? So there's that. In the anterior, I would suggest, it's been my experience, it's very, very rare to find that kind of patient with that much tissue in the anterior. It's quite unlikely. So that's one point. The second point is, certainly if you're doing an adhesive bridge, even with a thermocut burr, you're going to have some blood, so you've got a complication of your bonding. So that's Mm -hmm. true. And the second and the third complication is that your healing will be unpredictable. Yes. Most likely, you will get away with it to what's called an acceptable level. But you've got a reasonable chance of tissue collapse and you've got a reasonable chance of loss of papilla or your prosthetic didn't fill in the papilla in any case so i would suggest in the anterior in the unlikely event that you've got enough tissue it Mm -hmm. wouldn't be a bad approach if you've got a patient with low to moderate aesthetic demands i would say suicidal in somebody with high aesthetic demands absolutely I'm not going to be I'm not going to sit here and be ivory tower snobbish about it because I don't think it's a terrible approach. I just think it introduces some risks.
0: Oh yeah, there's there's yeah, there's a lot more it's less predictable, way less predictable for sure. And if you're on predictability, you have to there's no shortcut here. I mean, that I propose a shortcut, but then you're you're sacrificing uh, predictability for the this
1: shortcut. So um, yeah, and and you summarized posterior those uh units. I think posterior units is it's not the worst idea. And actually, you're more likely to have the tissue in posterior units. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Amazing. Jason, you, you, you've covered all the questions uh, that I had uh, and uh, given so much value here, uh, as you always do, Jason. I really appreciate it. You've taught me a lot on your course before and on, on lays way back when, many years ago, uh, vertical preparations. I've never actually attended your resin courses, but everyone raves about them. Please tell us. I know you're doing so much teaching in America uh, here. What are the kind of courses that you're running nowadays?
1: In the UK or the
0: US or elsewhere? Because we've got, you know, a 30% of the audience now US now. So uh, I think the American dentist yeah. would love to know and also the UK dentist. And I encourage a UK dentist to go and do a little CPD tour around the world as well. So uh, not? Not little...
1: So in the US, with the exclusion of some podium lectures, I'm, my hands-on is pretty much at Spear. So I, I'm resident faculty at Spear Education, which is in Scottsdale, in Arizona, near Phoenix. Nice location. If you want a sunny holiday... It's a lovely place, nice hotels, nice restaurants, good bars, second to non-facility with really good support. We've run a three-day hands-on course there, so it's three days of probably about 30% lecture, but the vast majority is hands-on, and we cover class four, class one, class two, resin veneers, discolored tooth, peg lateral, diastema closure, and worn teeth. And the interesting thing about that course at Spear, which is called Excellence in Composite Restorations, which is unique as far as I'm aware in the world, is that it's not sponsored by one composite company. So what I've done is I've chosen four different composite companies. And the reason why I chose those four is really because their composite systems are all completely different in terms of of, of application. So you get the chance to try four different approaches to the same thing. And it's not kind of sales heavy, which I hate. And I've also created in that what I call a translation sheet. So there is, say I use, for example, I don't know, and enamel, which we do on that course. There's a little translation sheet. So you could look at that and then you can translate it to, for example, Tokyama or, or Curare or GC or whatever. So you can basically do that class. With the four different composites and if you like one of those composites you could buy that or you could translate it to the composite you've already got in your own practice and just carry on doing the same thing on monday so that's that course the other hands-on cut classes i do regularly are there's one in australia next year with the australian dental association which i do regularly in sydney and at brisbane although we're doing melbourne next year
0: in May. got loads of uh, Aussies who, who listen to the podcast, so please do send me those links. Like so just, you know, nice and easy place on the YouTube and on the the blog page and the app, just for people to click on because it just makes it easier for everyone. But yeah, please do. In the UK? Yeah.
1: I'm just in talks about doing something in England, but currently my main base is in, well, for the foreseeable future, my main base is in Glasgow. And we have a website called restorativeprogram.co.uk, program double M E. And we have a class which is resin in September, which is sold out, sorry. And we also have a hands-on class in December, which I think there are spaces available on, which is ceramic. So in that class, we cover uh, ceramic restorations. We basically prep a full upper arch and we do onlays. We do onlays with margin elevation. We do partial onlays. We do crown preparations on posterior, on anterior teeth. We do veneer preparations on anterior teeth, three different types of veneers. And we do crowns with vertical margins. And we also do the pontics, which we've discussed today. That class is, again, fairly unique. I, don't, I wouldn't say it's totally unique, um, but I think it's relatively unique for the UK in so much as it's three days, three seven-hour days, entirely hands-on the lectures are done by webinar okay. so the lectures are all pre-recorded so you get the lectures basically you get the lectures when you sign up most people get them a month to two prior you watch the lectures hopefully and then you turn up and just do hands-on and you also get the opportunity to watch the lectures for six months afterwards uh, with online support so Basically, you get three days out of the practice and 46 hours of CPD, so you're done for the year.
0: Wow. Okay,
1: and, okay. Uh, this is how all courses should be in my opinion. All a the theory bit that you
0: can learn at home, you, you can. So I respect that that you guys do that already, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, because I was looking at that and I was like, well, if I wanted to take time away from my family and time away from home and time out of the practice and the cost of travel and the cost of the hotel, I don't want to be sitting in a lecture or listening to a lecture when I can listen to it online. And also the other fact is if you listen to it in a lecture, you miss a bit. You have to go to the bathroom but take a phone call. something like, that. you missed it. Mm-hmm. And then you're asking a question while everybody tuts and sighs in the room. Um, <laughs> it's already been covered. Whereas if you've got it on a webinar and you think, oh, I didn't quite get that, you just rewind it and watch it. Yeah, yeah. Watch it even twice. So we commonly get people watching it two or three times. So that I, I think that's the future of education, really. You know, what? Webinars watched at home and hands-on done live. Bl- blended, blended program. Yeah,
0: yeah. amazing. Jason, uh, please do send me those links so I can put them on. And if you got uh, Professor robin's paper, that'd be amazing as well. I'll find the 2015 Epontic, but if you have it handy, go for it. But if not, I'll find that. And I'll stick in the show notes. Thank you so much. Honestly, it was absolutely brilliant. Well, there we have it, guys. Isn't that the best resource on pontics you've ever seen? If it is, I would appreciate a comment or a thumbs up. To show some gratitude to Dr. Jason Smithson, I've put all his links at the bottom. He's a great clinician to learn from. I would heavily recommend to go on his courses. Go to his courses in America, right? If you're in Europe, go to America, have a tax deductible break and learn from Smithson and all the other educators in America. And for those of you on the app, you can answer a few questions, get some CPD. You've made it this far. You deserve some CPD. Thanks again for listening all the way to the end. And for those of you who heard the announcement about the event on Saturday 30th of September in Sheraton Skyline Hotel, we'd love to see you there. The website again is protrusive.co.uk forward slash occlusion. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll catch you in the next one.